Hey friends, this is Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. My name is Chef Preeti Mystery, and I am the author of the Juhu Beach Club cookbook and the co-founder and chef of the former Juhu Beach Club restaurant and Navi Kitchen. You're one of the only celebrities, actually, celebrity quote unquote, like however you want to define that, that yes, I follow. Please put that in quotes. Yeah. All right. There, I got it in quotes now. Uh, quote unquote celebrity that I follow um, on probably most social media because you just like say exactly like what the fuck is on in your mind. And I really, really like that. Um, and you also had a yeah. restaurant very close to where I lived in Oakland. Yeah. I, I don't really, uh, you know, sometimes I question, uh, whether it's really appropriate. Um, and maybe I'm just like fucking up my whole chances of having a long lasting career. No coffee <laughs> but, people are into it. Don't worry. <laughs> but you know, I kind of feel like, um, you know, towing the line never really got me anywhere. Um, and I, I don't think that like being a milk toast person, um, has ever been my MO. Um, I mean, even, I mean, I didn't understand, you know, it was only until I was like in my twenties or thirties, did I hear, uh, this quote about, I'd rather be one person's shot of whiskey than everyone's cup of tea. But, uh, which is, you know, pretty widely known. Um, but even in high school, like before I really <laughs> was <laughs> whatever, I used to say to my friends, I'd be like, I would rather be loved and hated than just have people think I'm like, okay. That's, um, that's good for me to hear because I feel like I like often grapple with that. Like even right now, um, a bunch of coffee people are at this barista competition and I'm mm-hmm. feeling like, oh, like I just want to be there and for everybody to like me. But at the same time, looking at people like you inspires me to to think like, oh no, like I want to say the things that are on my mind because they're important. <laughs> Let me go out there and create some enemies. <laughs> right, and that's fine. I have plenty of enemies. It's cool. But like, I also like deep. Like maybe this is insecurity on my own part. I'm like, no, I just want everyone to like me. Oh my God. I'm a Libra. I'm like such a people person and such a people pleaser. Like it, it totally like even like, I don't know, whoever I may like battle with on in whatever or disagree with. Um, I definitely still am like, do you think that they really like hate me or you think I I just annoy them? Um, (laughs) you know, I mean, we all want to be liked. Uh, I don't think that that's not, you know, a thing, but I think at some point, um, obviously, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, our belief system and values uh, come before that. I know. I think Um, also as like... So we all have a line somewhere, right? Yeah. I also think as service people, we have this like deep desire to be liked as well because we create things for people that we want them to, you know, to like. We want to make them happy. Yeah. I mean, that is the goal, right? Like as as a person in this industry, like you want to have the cafe, the restaurant, the bar that everyone wants to go to. Um, like you don't want to be the cult or the niche. You want to be the one that everybody loves. Um, and you know, I mean, that's, that's challenging. It, it, it is kind of hardwired into our nature. Like the customer's always right. Like, you know, we just want to like, we don't want to alienate anyone. We want to make sure everybody feels welcome. Um, and, and yet, I don't necessarily think that that is true in many of the upper echelons or just different facets of 
the hospitality industry at all because I mean I don't think there I think there's a, a significant amount of restaurants hotels, bars, cafes that I go to where I definitely don't feel welcome and I don't think they give a fuck. Well, that's, um, that's interesting to think about because we do have this mentality in hospitality that the customer is always right and we're always trying to please those people. Um, but then I think about, I, when you started talking about that, I started thinking about it like on the other end. Like, is that a dangerous kind of mentality because the interactions that we have with people can be so gendered and so biased. Like I think I was thinking about the exactly. story that you told me about, you know, that, that white customer coming up to you and being like, good job to like the one white dude in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, there's, there's an implicit bias when uh, companies say uh, an individual's like, Oh, they want to be there for everybody, but it's like, who are they really valuing? Um, one of the things, you know, you just mentioned this example of a customer in my restaurant as a customer of other restaurants, I, you know, I am a select few (laughs) of us lucky ones occupy a very interesting space by being a chef of a certain level and known and, or whatever, as my friends like to say, Oh, right. I always forget you're semi-famous. Um, (laughs) It's like this light bulb because, you know, so many chefs are cisgendered white men um, or women, um, and they probably get treated pretty well in most places regardless. Um, You know, I think about a lot of, you know, trans male friends of mine who talk about this, like, amazing thing of, like, when they transition and just the way you know, every customer service person wants to help them and is so happy to see them um, when they all of a sudden are like a man and how this glaring. So for me, it's like I'll have these experiences where I'll go to certain restaurants or bars or cafes and, you know, people will, you know, treat me a certain way. And then all of a sudden someone recognizes me and it's like this 180 experience um, where you know, I mean, I think about like going wine tasting. I had this experience. I remember, um, going wine tasting in Napa and, uh, it was just, we were there for something else, but we had like a half hour to kill. So we were like, let's go to this winery. Um, we walked in and I'm like, do you do industry tastings? And they're like, no, do you carry our wines? Which is like the bullshit question. All the wineries always give you. And you're like, nope. Uh, cause they're looking at me and they've already like put me in some category. Like I'm like a sous chef or line cook in some, you know, random restaurant. Um, and I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Like we'll pay for the fucking tasting. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, halfway through the tasting, uh, a colleague. So there was like an event going on. Uh, another colleague comes in a guy who's like in the restaurant world. Um, introduces himself to me and we start chatting. Um, and then all of a sudden the guy behind the counter goes, Oh wait, I know you. And it like clicks in his head of like, you know, seeing me on parts unknown with Anthony Bourdain or whatever. And all of a sudden, uh, all the fees are being waived and reserve wines are being poured. Um, and it's just this like, fucked up thing because <laughs> it's like I I just feel pain for people who look like me that 
don't have the privilege of being semi-famous <laughs> and therefore right. people, you know, either, you know, and I feel like that is something that so many people never have to fight for. They don't have to prove themselves. They just show up. You know, they're probably that line cook or sous chef that works for me. And they walk in and people assume they're the executive chef of someplace because they're like a big, tall white guy. Um, you know, I mean, that's that's sort of the thing I feel like in terms of customer service that is really missing. It's like, who are we placing? Like when we say that we want everybody and we want to be like welcome to everybody at the end of the day, who are we really valuing in that? Um, and that's something that like I talk to my staff about a lot. And I mean, you can't control every person and every interaction they have, but as a philosophy, as a business, I would always tell people like, it's actually those of us that are more marginalized that are so used to being treated like shit that I really want you all to go above and beyond. Because if you're a tall white guy and you get to walk into a restaurant and no one greets you in like five minutes, you're like, oh, they're busy. Because you're used to being treated really well everywhere you go. Uh, and like, you're so important. And But if you're a woman of color, a queer woman of color, and you walk into a restaurant and you don't get greeted for five minutes, you're like, fuck these people. Because you're so used to having all of these parts of your person be judged and, uh, and, and therefore you're used to getting ignored. Um, and having those kinds of experiences. So you're, you know, that's why for me, it was like always important to make sure people felt like above and beyond awesome and like, yes, welcome. We love you. How do you train your staff to do that? Because I think that's, that is super key, but like, that's not, that's not a conversation I've ever heard anybody having with like a staff or with people who are front facing. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it is really challenging and, uh, I've had to sit down at times and like try to explain it to people and some people get it or they don't. Um, and you know, I mean, ultimately, as long as they treat everyone with that same love, <laughs> um, whether they get like the importance of actually going above and beyond for, uh, more marginalized people, uh, you know, I, I just, that, that to me is the most important thing. But I think, you know, I mean, I, you have to like, like in anything, you share your philosophy, you give people examples of like, Hey, I'm your boss. And this shit happens to me all the time. You know, I mean, I think that that is the part that humanizes this stuff for people. Um, mm -hmm. like, I know you respect me. I sign your paycheck every week. I think you like working here this is the fucked up shit that I deal with in the world and we're here to try to make it a better place. I mean, I think it's also like given how outspoken I am, I tend to attract a certain uh, employee or potential employee that have a set of values that are somewhat similar. Um, but you know, I mean, that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, and if someone is actually an asshole, then I'll just fire them, which I've done. <laughs> <laughs> so you have your restaurant. Um, it was on 51st and Telegraph in Temescal. And I think we were kind of in this like hotbed of shitty restaurants for a moment um, with uh, <laughs> Charlie Hallowell and um, just kind of the whole, his whole ridiculous yeah. Um, empire. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder like how you, like how do you like start to conceptualize like, 
the harm that these folks have done in the industry and how like they've sort of some of them have started to be kind of accepted again. Like Pizza Aiello is still really busy. I walked by there and I was floored. Yeah. Yeah. It's disappointing. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, Oakland is a small town. (laughs) Oakland's a small town. Berkeley, Oakland, Berkeley combined is a small town. Um, and I, you know, when, when the article came out last year in the Chronicle, I, uh, actually that was the first thing I thought was like, how is this going to play out in a town that is not the size of Manhattan or, you know, all of New York and as liberal as Oakland compared to say New Orleans. Um, And it's been really sadly disappointing how not liberal (laughs) <laughs> Oakland and Berkeley really are uh, when it comes to their like wood fired pizza. Um, and I think that it's when I say it's a small town, the other part that really, so that's how I think ultimately the thing in terms of the fact that the restaurants are still full, um, you know, you've got a certain amount of people and I know, you know, some of these people were my neighbors. I lived in Temescal. I, I don't anymore, but I lived in Temescal for the whole time that we owned Juhu pretty much. Um, and a couple years before, um, a lot of my neighbors, yeah, that just are like, oh, it's okay now. He apologized. Um, and, and I think that uh, to me it's just so extremely disappointing how this sort of neoliberal mindset that somehow we can all just move on um, and this like, well, what are you going to do, like, you know, whatever – it doesn't make any sense to me. I think that uh, when I think about the amount of lives that were harmed, um, like let's say Charlie is totally, you know, he's he's on the up and up. <laughs> he's reformed. Um, never going to say anything stupid again, which is challenging to imagine. Um I mean, I know the guy, you know, I mean, fucking like (laughs) he was my friend, uh, colleague. I mean, not, we didn't really hang out outside of work, but I used to go to his restaurant, see him all the time at the farmer's market, like say hello and chat or whatever. Um, like he says a lot of stupid shit, like even stuff that's not, (laughs) he just (laughs) stupid shit flies out of his mouth, even if it's not like sexually explicit. Um, you know, let's say that's all done and done. Like the amount of people harmed, whether it's the 30 women that came forward. Uh, I know myself, there's at least like three or four or five people who've worked for me that worked in one of his restaurants that maybe were not a part of this lawsuit and came forward, but had really negative experiences. Um, or were just like, I just, you know, need to stay away from him. Like some 24 year old woman, like, yeah, I just see him and I just go the other way. Like, these are just, like, normal things that, like, this should not be the experience of a 24-year-old woman trying to, like, get a job after college and build a life in the East Bay. Um, And then I just think about also, like, I thought about this recently because as a sort of, as a chef in the East Bay, again, as a small, it's such a small town, and I just see this fucking, like, divide and all of this talk going on in the background that people don't know about of where, you know, all of a sudden people need to take sides and take a stand. And like, it's just fucking sad. 
because to me, like so much of what I felt so proud of, especially in Oakland, more than San Francisco, um, was this real sense of like deep camaraderie that all of us chefs and owners had uh, for each other and that we really respected each other and we wanted each other to succeed. And it wasn't this like, you know, I'm just out to get my own and whatever. It was like this, like, yes, we can (laughs) kind of mentality and that we're all in it together. Um, I mean, I think the first year we opened, uh, you know, we swapped family meal with Pizzaiolo, uh, I think with Brown Sugar Kitchen, um, you know, I mean, those are the types of things where it's like, Hey, we're a brand new restaurant. Like we're going to make family meal for your squad. And, Oh, they sent a bunch of pizzas over, you know, those kinds of like things that are just kind of broken, you know, because now you also have women on both sides of the fence. So like still fucking with like, you know, women and women being divided by the fucked up shit that men do. Um, that now you still have a culture and a community of chefs that all would have supported each other in the past that are now like, oh, I heard they're on this camp. Oh, I hear they're in this camp. Um, it's pretty obvious which camp I'm in if you look at any of my social media. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's just so sad in the way that it's dividing people that would otherwise have so much to contribute together and, uh, are allies of each other. And, you know, so it's sad to me. Yeah. I think actions like, like Charlie's or like other sexual predators kind of, I mean, obviously the experiences of survivors is, is paramount, but I think we ignore so many other parts of what is affected. Like communities Mm -hmm. are affected financial, like potential financial gains are affected like people who could have been like managers or leaders at at these restaurants are probably like well my career is whatever because I took this stance um and I think that like that is sad because like it's that one person who destroyed it yeah I mean farmers you know I mean my buddy Ben who was supplying me and all of Charlie's restaurants and only a couple others because he just had like 2000 square feet, I think in Berkeley on a rooftop and beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, and you know, I closed both my restaurants (laughs) and then, you know, he, from a political standpoint was like, okay, I'm not going to supply Charlie's restaurants anymore. Um, that's a huge impact. Do you find though that people are like, well, I should support them because, or like I should support Charlie because of the people he works with. Cause that was an argument that came up a lot with four barrel um, people should support four barrel because of like the relationships that they have with farmers. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is not how this works. Well, I mean, I think that that speaks exactly to like the, uh, I think I tweeted something recently about like how, you know, I just imagine the shock and horror that the, citizens of Oakland and Berkeley would have if, you know, instead of sexually harassing all of these women that, uh, Charlie had used feedlot beef and, you know, veggies sprayed with pesticides. Oh my God, I love that and <laughs> like, 
I mean, that's what's messed up is exactly that. It's like you're, you're caring more about, I think both are important. First and foremost, let's be clear. I don't want to go to restaurants that use feedlot beef and veggies sprayed with pesticides. I'm not condoning that. Um, and I don't cook that way. Uh, that being said, I just wanted to point out like the disparity in, I mean, I mean, in a, you could say that it's like how we treat our environment or our animals, but ultimately I think it's a very selfish thing. It's about one's own body as a temple and that that is the most important thing. Um, and, and how employees are treated, your neighbors, um, your friends. Uh, I mean, there is, it, it's messed up that people don't care. Uh, and I think part of the reason they don't care is because it's mostly all women. Um, I think that, you know, as I said, I used to live in Temescal and I, I know that obviously people come from for neighborhoods farther away. Uh, but like, there is also a disconnect of working people. I mean, it's also a class issue. It's such a huge class issue of like working people and people with secondary degrees that are making, you know, over $75,000, a year. Um, you know, it, there's a huge disparity there. And I think that that also feeds into it because it's like, oh, well, those people aren't my people. I don't know those people. Those poor people, oh, you know, whatever. Like, there's, a, to me, you know, that hourly server who's trying to get through grad school, um, it doesn't connect for people, a lot of people who, you know, are well-educated and, you know, have a certain amount of disposable income and, you know, they're not friends with people who work the line on Saturday night. So how they relate to that is very different. So there's also a, like, in, there is like an underlying, like middle-class working class, like divide, I believe. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think there's, especially as a barista, because, you know, I see people every day, there's a lot of like talk about mm -hmm. choice like, oh, you chose to be here. Like, this is your decision. And I'm like, okay, sure. Let's, let's, let's go with that train of thought. Like, I don't know. Like, I can't even like, sometimes that that's like just even too much for me to handle when people are like, well, you chose to be here or this person chose to work at Pizzaiolo or this person chose to work for Jeremy Tucker at right. Four Barrel. And Have you been to those places? They're like packed. Yeah. I'm sorry, but like servers rely on tips. They do. And these places, I think, you know, you know, at least in my restaurants and most like progressive, which I would say Charlie's restaurants were aside from this, uh, aside from Charlie, um, <laughs> that they probably tip out the kitchen a certain amount or at least some of that. Uh, and so like, yeah, working in a restaurant that is fucking slammed all the time is great. Right. I mean, I, I worked at Pizza Ilo for a moment and I was... I have never been given more free food in my whole fucking life. And I was like, I can't, I can't give that up because I've, you know, I work in coffee. I get free coffee. That's cute. But <laughs> that doesn't feed me. Yeah. I mean, um, I know, I know servers that are like, well, I'm holding on to my like one or two shifts because of the employee discount. Um, and I get it. Right. <laughs> you gotta eat. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like I, I, I thank my lucky stars every day that I work in coffee because I often don't have to pay for coffee because of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, this is a daily habit I have. Mm -hmm. So, um, but when I was in, you know, when I was living in Oakland, 
and you know, kind of, I worked, I worked like pretty much like in every restaurant Mm -hmm. between 40th and 51st street (laughs) for a while. Um, and I was like, this is the only way that I can make my life work in this incredibly expensive neighborhood is to work a shift or two at all these places and get a discount. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I actually, I remember, uh, when I stopped working in coffee and I was like, Oh, I have to pay for like lattes. I was like, fuck time, time to just start <laughs> drinking drip coffee. <laughs> Cause you know, yeah. Like come into work, make yourself a nice fancy latte with some this or that or, um, cool. Let's actually go backwards then. Um, and talk yeah. about how you got into the restaurant industry. Cause you mentioned that you were a barista was, at one point as well. That was like the thing to be in 1994. That's that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> it was so the thing to be. It was like you're the coolest. Um, I, no, I mean it was my yeah it was my first job uh, in Toledo, Ohio, um, at Sufficient Grounds was the name of the coffee shop. It's still a coffee shop now, but it has a different name. Um, and uh, I loved it. I mean, this was back in when you just like sling shots like, well that looks good. Um, um, there wasn't all this like measuring and perfect, like (laughs) timing of the shots and stuff. Um, which was great because I'm kind of a cowboy, um, in my cooking as well. Um, but, uh, I loved it and, you know, it was actually one of the best practices that, uh, I learned there that I think is really valuable in our industries is, uh, when you would work so who I was working the cash register. Um, and it was super busy at like Friday, Saturday nights, we have like two people on the machine. Um, uh, and you know, which is a lot for Toledo, Ohio. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you were, you always called out a order and the response, if you got it was always, thank you. Um, and I really love that because, uh, you know, I've seen this evolution being a chef for, you know, 15 plus years where it was yes, chef, it was we, it was we chef. Now it's this like very sexy and very polite herd, herd. That is the line. I've learned this from my line cooks. I'm like, when did this happen? (laughs) We just say herd. (laughs) (laughs) Like how sort of, I don't know, just like not romantic is that (laughs) like it's just sad it's like heard it's like I hate when people when I ask somebody something and they're like sure I'm like what do you mean like yes no are you excited are you like you know begrudgingly saying yes like I don't understand like heard um and and what I loved about that is like taking something like as simple as like this language that we use every day with each other in the kitchen and like turning that in this way of like, you know, yeah, yeah. That barista very well could have just said heard when someone yells out like double skim, blah, 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 latte. Um, or they could just yell, you know, whatever they could just say heard. Um, but how nice is that to say, thank you. I just think that those are the types of simple things, uh, that, can really improve a workplace that we don't even think about. They're not like the big, you know, sexual harassment and assault, zero tolerance policy and all of that. I mean, those things are important, but it's just like these little things that create a culture of politeness um, and respect. Like uh, I think about how 
I prefer to generally talk to my front of the house, which is like, or, you know, most of the staff was always like, Hey, could you do me a favor? Like, Hey, when you have a second, um, you know, even with my dishwasher is always like, cuando tienes un momento. Like there's no like barking orders where it's like when the chef says something, like you need to do it that moment, like drop everything you're doing. It's like respect for someone's own workspace and just being like, Hey, uh, when you have a second, um, could you please help me with this? Or could you do me a favor and not just this, like, do this, do that kind of speech. Does that make sense? No, that totally makes sense. I, I had never really worked in restaurants until, um, I worked at Pizza Iolo for a little bit, but even then that wasn't in the back of house. Um, and then I was a food runner, um, here in a restaurant in Chicago mm-hmm. and I was petrified of what that environment was going to mm-hmm. be like just like absolutely petrified that it would be really aggressive and very like yelling this and that we use the word heard a lot. That's true. Um, but it was surprisingly not aggressive Mm. and I was very thankful to be in an environment that was direct, but not, um, direct, but not mean, I guess. Like I, if I need something, I'm going to ask for it. And like, I'll always ask for things and give people timestamps and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, I mean, I think that's also like part of it. I mean, for sure. Like, it's not like I, you know, I mean, plenty of line cooks would say, I mean, I'm also like come from an attitude of like not having some, like you have to do this and you have to do that kind of environment. So for me, it was always like, okay, one of my line cooks comes and works who came from some other place and says heard. It's like, okay, fine. That's what you want to see. No problem. You know? So So then how did you go from uh, baristaing to uh, cooking? Um, Let's see. I, I was bracing mostly in Ann Arbor, um, and I did have a, a stint once we moved to San Francisco at the Red Door. Red Door is Bearded Lady Truck Stop and Cafe um, on 14th Street, which is now actually a hair salon that I go to, <laughs> <laughs> and only because that's where my hair sells is. I followed her from like three different hair salons in the past like 10 plus years. Um, it's called dreamers and make believers, which I think does, you know, red doors, bearded lady justice. Um, this is where we steamed, we, we scrambled eggs on the espresso wand. Um, so not necessarily the most high end coffee was being made there. <laughs> Whatever. Martha Stewart does this apparently. So I, I that's what I hear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, lesbians invented it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I started cooking and I, and then I think it was kind of like, so, you know, there it was sort of like a dual role. Like you had to do both. Um, you were like a barista, you were cashier. Uh, oh, also you had to do public math. There was no cash register or even a freaking calculator. I was like, this is the most frightening thing. <laughs> oh, and they were like, I, you know, I was like this skinny little 19 year old kid um, straight out of Ohio. And it was like all of these like 30 something like big butch dykes. And I was just like, I'm so scared. <laughs> I'm like adding up your order, <laughs> scrambling your eggs. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then I, I think I just got like more into, I was in college. So I think I just had to focus more on school and stopped working for a while. Um, and then I went to school for film and was working in film arts organization. Um, and at that time, I just started uh, cooking like a lot at home because we, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and 
I just, it came to me. Like it just really came naturally to me. I'd never cooked as a kid really, aside from like heating up Campbell's minestrone soup. Um, and I, yeah, it just, it came really naturally to me and people really enjoyed it. And my friends would really enjoy everything I'd make. Like they'd always be like super excited when Ann and I would have a party and just seemed like it was kind of staring me in the face, um, that this was what I needed to do. It's, it's refreshing to hear that you weren't like someone who grew up making food. Cause I think that for anybody mm-hmm. like of color, there's this like mystique of like, you they learned it from like right. their grandmother and like they're handing down these recipes for generations yeah. and not to say that that's not a valid way of learning how to cook, but I, you know, I'm, I'm Cuban American and people assume that like, I know how to cook because my grandmother taught me and not to say that my grandma isn't a fantastic mm-hmm. cook. She is, but like, you know, I grew up eating like tombstone pizzas and ramen noodles mm-hmm. every yeah, day. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, uh, I, I am the youngest of three girls. Um, I've always been very masculinely oriented. Uh, and I really didn't identify at all with my mom and what was going on in the kitchen. To me, it was just like another like household chore, like cleaning the bathroom or, you know, whatever, like raking the leaves. Um, actually, the raking the leaves, I felt like was, more, you know, my speed because uh, it felt a little like boyish and macho. Um but it, yeah, it wasn't until I was a lot older and, and that is a narrative that I think as, as people of color and also as women, um, has been a narrative that so many people have tried to put on me and I'm always like, no, like, <laughs> no, like, yes, is my mother, you know, exactly what you just said. Yeah. Is my mother, my grandmother, amazing cooks? Totally. Did I grow up eating amazing food? Yes. Uh, did they teach me how to cook? No. Um, I guess they taught me how to have a good palate because they made great food. And then, you know, once I left home, I was like, I can't just eat slices and burritos. I, you know, I wasn't happy with restaurant food or whatever convenience food. Um, I'm not just going to eat jar sauce and pasta. Um, <laughs> yeah, they didn't teach me how to cook. And it, it is kind of frustrating because I just think like how many, like, you know, even if you, whether it's people of color or especially women, I'm like, how many Indian guys do you think like that are chefs like to reporters ask them like, so did you learn to cook from your mom and your grandma? Like that's, it almost sounds absurd. Right. Right. Which is just, which just makes it all the more absurd. <laughs> right. And I'm like, so then like, how do you kind of combine like your identity into your cooking? Cause you do like, mm-hmm. you do cook Indian food. You do have like this modern take on it. But at the same time, like, I wonder if that ever feels like restricting or if people kind of assume that you're like this one type of cook. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't cook Indian food when I started out. I went to culinary school in London. I worked in restaurants pretty much that were none of which were Indian, um, mostly European um, and California cuisine once I was back here. Um and it wasn't until I started cooking uh, on my own uh, project that I started cooking Indian food uh, professionally. So for me, I feel like I chose this path <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily foisted upon me. I think, you know, in some ways it might feel confining, but at the same time, 
so funny. I just keep thinking about these like stupid Charlie stories since you brought him up. There's more this time he was like, I came in and he was like, Oh, I made a really great potato curry the other night. You would have been so proud of me. And I was just like, I was like fucking great, Charlie. Guess what? I make good pasta. (laughs) Yeah. He was like, Oh, I bet you do. I don't come in here and tell you that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that as much as it could be, could seem confining because yes, I I think I make pretty good pasta um, or what have you. Um, I feel like this winter I cracked the code on, like I made the best crab gumbo I've ever made. Um, But uh, to me, I feel a certain, I wouldn't say duty as much as pride um, in my culture and my history. I mean, it's something that for a long time I really rejected. Uh, but most of the reasons I rejected it had more to do with the fact that, you know, immigrant parents have this really awesome way of tying up everything about your like country of origin and culture with like the middle class norms of society that they believe in. Um, and so as like a queer woman who was sort of rebelling against any sort of like, you know, middle America status quo. Um, I put all those things in the same basket or, or I equated them as all in the same basket because that's how they were presented to me by my parents. Um, so that was like their worldview is like being Indian is like eating dar and rice. And then it's also like being a doctor and living in the suburbs (laughs) and like, you know what I mean? Like those things, you know, and then I got older and I was like, wait, these things are separate. Um, just because I'm like a queer Indian woman living in San Francisco with a Mohawk doesn't mean that I'm not still Indian. Um, and that I can't be proud of my heritage and culture, um, from where I sit, it doesn't have to be from just this one place. And I, and I say it very specifically as immigrant families, because I, I, you know, talk to other first, second generation immigrants, uh, where it's like, yeah, I mean, a lot of And then I've talked to friends who I've met in recent years who are from India and who've moved to the U.S. when they're like in their 20s. And I'll say something because my mental model of India is still the same mental model that my parents have, which is like 1970s. And they'll be like, dude, it's 2019 or 2018. Uh, Like India's changed. And I'm like, "Okay, but I don't know about that. Because they're just like, what are you talking about? Like, India is not like that anymore. That's not the India I grew up in. And I'm like, okay, well, that's the India that my parents told me is the only India. And so, you know, just just breaking away from that and getting to a place where I can really appreciate the... Then I just go to this place where I'm like, well, I look at Indian cuisine in America and I'm like, you know, it's a baby. Like there's so much, there's, you know, a subcontinent. Um, there's so much for me to know and learn. Um, and, and, and so much more to create and showcase and bring to the forefront in terms of what Americans know about Indian cuisine period. You know, I mean, it's still very much, you know, it's changing, but it's still very much, uh, you know, if you consider the whole United States, a culture of naan and curry, and that's it. And that's what people know. They know chicken tikka masala and sag paneer. Um, and, and that is such a small, small, tiny part of like this entire subcontinent of cuisine. 
so to me, it's exciting. Um, and I don't feel boxed in by it as much as like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to wear that flag and fly it and like, you know, be the, you know, freaking Indian spice ambassador. <laughs> Cause it's awesome. We're gonna have to make you like a plaque that says Indian, that. Indian spice ambassador. One of the, one of my, the tweets, or maybe I read this in a story that I really liked, um, that you said was about pricing at your restaurant mm-hmm. and people complaining that pricing um if like the prices were too high at your restaurant that that was kind of racially tinged yeah i said that they were racist yeah yeah you said that. <laughs> so, yeah what i said was if people think my food is overpriced they're racist can you impact that a little bit more um yeah i mean i think that it's it's pretty simple i mean uh first and foremost you used to live in uh, the neighborhood and came to my restaurant, like we had like nothing on the menu over like $28. Yeah, exactly. There was nothing on the menu that was, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, like I think, yeah, nothing that you couldn't go like across the street to, again, we're just going to use pizza. Yellow Cause it's, you know, <laughs> but fun. nothing that you, nothing, wow. yeah, ex- cause it's fun. Um, but there's nothing on the menu that was more than anything there. Right. And so I think that, you know, I mean, I, to be totally, uh, honest, uh, I think in the last year and a half, we maybe had like one lamb entree that also served two to three people with the rest of your meal. And that was in the like 30 to $34 range. Um, but it was like a, it was like a thing. It was like a big thing for people to share. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that was like basically a lot of the examples that I was giving. It was like there was a restaurant. It wasn't Pizzaiolo, but it was a different Italian restaurant in Oakland um, and very respected. Um, and I had gone there for dinner um, on a night off and I got this like tortellini in Brodo. And it was like literally like six or eight tiny tortellini with like some little like, you know, hen mousse in a broth. And it was like... <laughs> $28. And here's the thing. I'm okay with that. If, you know, I assume they use really great meat. They're making this pasta in-house. And the reverence that we have for the skill of making pasta is at a level where, I mean, they probably could have charged $35, $38. Who knows? Uh, I mean, definitely another restaurant that maybe had nicer furniture and a better address could note for sure. Um, and, and I think that that's where it is. It's that like, you know, perception. Um, I remember talking to another, a uh, couple chefs also in the like Shea family and they were talking about how like, Oh, this whole thing of like, you know, it used to be this thing in the early two thousands and before of like writing all the farm names, like everything was like, you know, frog hollow peaches with like, you know, Strauss dairy, you know, creme fraiche and like, you know, whatever, the whole thing. And it was like, you know, there was this movement to kind of get away from that description with every single menu item. And I was like, yeah, I still have to do it. Because you're in Oakland? Well, no, because I'm Indian. Oh. Because hmm. <laughs> my restaurant is Indian. Right. Because they, they had a California cuisine restaurant. Um, and and I was like, yeah, I, I still feel like I have to do it because I just don't feel like people understand or assume uh, that I'm using the best ingredients if I don't. And they were both like th- thought, like meander, sort of thought about it for like literally like five seconds. And we're like, yeah, you do. Um, 
I mean, because it's true. It's just like, like, that's the whole thing, like, that, uh, you know, when you talk about price, um, a lot of it is whether you want to value the techniques of blending, you know, all these different spices um, less than the value of being able to make, you know, tortellini by hand. Um, Right. I mean, that's pretty much how you make tortellini. I don't know how I, I suppose there's a machine somewhere. Um, <laughs> or also just the assumption that uh, certain restaurants, mostly California, French, Italian, uh, use the best of the best uh, ingredients and that any sort of non, you know, a restaurant that doesn't fit into that ethnicity uh, or culture somehow uses crap. Right. Um, and And I think that that's something that, is is it also plays into this perception of somehow the food is supposed to be cheaper um because there's just like not the same like reverence or like level of accepted like skill going into it yeah i think that that's definitely the case and then i also think on the other hand there's also this culture of like you know uh the sort of chowhound anthony bourdain like oh i'm you know, the best quote unquote ethnic food is in those little divey hole in the walls. Um, and that sort of mental model where like, Oh, it's okay that they're using like crappy meat and, you know, veggies. Cause it's this like amazing, like they, there's this weird dichotomy where like people have to accept the idea of like a cuisine, like Indian cuisine or Chinese cuisine or Mexican cuisine also, uh, following the same sort of, uh, you know, values of local, organic, sustainable, using traditional methods, um, everything made from scratch, et cetera, um, that other cuisines have, which, you know, obviously all of our cuisines have that at the very core, like, you know, joke around about the word organic and like a hundred years ago, it was just called farming. Um, so, I mean, yeah, Indian cuisine also comes from just like every cuisine on the planet from a culture of using what's available to you because we didn't used to have things that weren't, you know, just, you couldn't get tomatoes in January. Um, so I think that that, that's the other part is just like people making that mental leap. Uh, I think that people are starting to get there. I mean, this was 2013 when we opened, so I think... I think that things have changed significantly um, in the last five, six years. What are your goals for both, I guess, for yourself and for like the restaurant industry as a whole? And I know that that's a really big question, but maybe (laughs) more like what's on your like what's on your mind right now? And like, what are you hopeful for? Um, I mean, I'm really hopeful in terms of how things have changed to see so many, uh, I guess I can say young because they are younger than me, uh, younger women of color uh, getting so much visibility um, in a way that I feel like I had to fight for a long time to get. I think that, you know, women like Rima Seal, uh, Night Yoon, um, the ladies who just took over the old Juhu space, Fob Kitchen, Janice and Brandy Dilsey. Um, I love just seeing them get, so much attention, um, right out the gate. Um, 
it's so refreshing and lovely to see. Um, and I like to think that, you know, some people like myself and Tanya and many others kind of pave the way for that. Um, and I guess, you know, for me, I feel like, so that makes me feel hopeful about our industry. I feel like, you know, as much as I feel like it's been challenging for people to figure out, like, what do we do with these bad men that have been exposed for their bad behavior? Uh, and that seems to be a question everyone has a hard time answering. Um, I do think that the one question that has been answered well is like, okay, what do we now celebrate and who do we celebrate? Um, and the answer to that, I feel like has unequivocally just been like, you know, women, women of color, people of color, non-binary people, uh, just, you know, open those floodgates. Oh, wow. There's all these people that have been here. <laughs> uh, and that part I think is fantastic. I think, uh, for myself, you know, I'm just trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, I definitely don't think I'm done with the restaurant game and world. Um, it's kind of just in me in a way. Um, but I do think I want to spend more time kind of focusing on different techniques and aspects of what we were talking about earlier in terms of Indian cuisine um, and building like a, a more sustainable business. Like I feel like every step in my journey has just been like part of a learning. Like to me, it's like, it's not that like Juhu and just like died. It's like, it needs to like, I don't even think it's fully realized yet. Like, I feel like it's still like, I learned so much myself about my own cooking and what, you know, when I opened Juhu, we, you know, Ann and I thought it was going to be a place with a bunch of like Indian sliders and masala fries. And that evolved into something very different. So I think that, uh, I can only imagine that I continue to have the same sort of evolution um, as I, as I sort of grow. Like to me, it's like, I didn't ever really work for any one chef that sort of defined my career as a mentor, but I feel like I just keep kind of figuring out on my own with these different steps that I take. And it might be frustrating to people who are like, can you just like have a restaurant that we can go to all the time? Uh, <laughs> that like my food, but you know, for me, it's sort of a journey. Uh, and in a way I feel like, you know, I sort of graduated out of that space. Um, and you know, something that Tanya Holland and I talk about a lot, which she is realizing and I'm sort of working towards, which is like, no, I want a grown ass restaurant. Um, I, I want a real restaurant with like, you know, I mean, we still shared bathrooms at Juhu with the shitty taqueria next door. <laughs> like I want, like I used to go to other people's restaurants and have bathroom envy. I'm like, Oh my God, it's spa like in here compared to our like shithole with someone's name, like etched into the sink, which was cute and cool and scrappy for a long time. But like now I, I you know, I think it's time also as much as I, I was just talking about some of uh, my peers that are, really shining in the past year or so, I feel like it's also time for those of us that have been around to finally get the types of opportunities that some of these men have had handed to them. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's time for that. Oh, amen. <laughs> I feel like you just vocalized how I feel about just my 
my career in the coffee industry, I'm sick and tired of men just being given opportunities that I think should be available for more people, more people. (laughs) Imagine that. Um, Imagine that. I feel like I could have a whole like separate conversation with you about building a sustainable business because I do actually like think a lot about people opening up coffee shops and like how unsustainable that is if you don't have the resources available to you um, and how you kind of have to kill yourself to do it. But I think that would be a whole nother, yeah. another episode. We'll call it, we'll um, call it, why did I sell my successful restaurant? <laughs> to take care of your damn self. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show with us. I always say us because I used to have a co-host, uh-huh. but it's just me. It's cool. Uh, if people want to contact you or follow you, like what's the best way to kind of like? Um, Chef Mystery on Twitter um, and same handle on Instagram. Um, those are probably the best ways. Is there any uh, upcoming projects or things you want to plug, aka your book? Oh, yes, of course. My book that came out last year, uh, the Juhu Beach Club cookbook, it's on Amazon and also where most books are sold in most independent bookstores. Um, And uh, yeah, I've got a couple things coming up. I'm actually going to L.A. to be a part of this uh, National Day of Racial Healing um, that Ava DuVernay, um, uh, the amazing director and producer that she is. Um, we met this past June and have kind of stayed in touch. Uh, and she's putting on this event, um, at the end of January in LA. Um, and I think it's gonna be really cool. There's gonna be a meal that's part of it that, um, I'll be a part of with a few other chefs. Um, and, uh, also be doing a collaborative dinner with, uh, Hina Patel who came out of La Cucina, another, um, woman of color who's, uh, new on the scene. Um, and she has an Indian restaurant in uh, the dog patch in San Francisco called Besharam. I've been helping her out a little bit in the last few months. Um, and we're going to be doing a collab dinner as part of Women's History Month La Cocina event in March. That's awesome. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Boss Barista is made by me, Ashley Rodriguez, in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading design studio, editorial platform, and podcast examining all the ways we look at the things that we eat and drink. You can check out more at goodbeerhunting.com. Seriously, their stories are incredible. My favorite series right now is the Humanity and Hospitality series that they've been running for the past couple of months, examining different ways that we look at people in the service industry. Special thanks to Jesse Raub and Jordan Stalling. Also special thanks to our music contributors, the band Lost in the Sun. You've made this podcast sound incredible. I'm just looking for a better